Thank you for downloading this podcast from Pardes North America. This episode of the Pardes Parsha podcast features Rabbi Alex Israel and Rabbi Elchanan Miller on Parshat Vayikahel Pikudei. For the latest episode of the Parsha podcast, please visit elmod.pardes.org. And now, Rabbis Alex Israel and Elchanan Miller. Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast. I'm delighted to be with you. My name is Alex Israel, and I'm Elchanan Miller. And this week we're going to be discuss- discussing Parsha Vayakel Pikudei. Vayakel and Pikudei are something of a repetition. They go back and talk about the construction of the tabernacle, the construction of the Mishkan. Um, we had the architectural plans in the Parshiot of Truma and Tetzaveh. And we've just been dealing with the, the whole sin and the repair from the golden calf. And now we're actually going to construct the tabernacle and uh, put it all together, the donations and the actual construction. So Elchanan, you know, we've been talking about different aspects of, of, this, uh, of this construction. You want to talk about one particular item, one vessel in the Mishkan. Uh, what is it? And what is it about? What, what's, what's it about? So there are various ways of translating this uh, vessel, this piece of furniture in this uh, section of the Torah that is sort of like an interior decorating seminar and uh, interior design of how the house of God should look like. Um, and each and every one of the uh, the tools of the, of the temple or of the Mishkan have its own function. We have the menorah to illuminate. We have the table that serves for, for bread. And uh, remarkably, we also have the wash basin or the laver, which is used for the priests to wash their hands and feet before they purify themselves for the work for the sacrifices. And, um, you know, I guess it relates to how we, we think of the of the temple or of the Mishkan. Is it, is it a house for God? Is it not? Maybe we can talk about why God needs these pieces of furniture or why we as people need them. Maybe we can go into that later. But one of the, the unique things about this laver, this wash basin, is who how it was built and who contributed to its construction. So the Torah tells us in chapter 38 of Exodus, of Shemot, he made the laver of copper and its copper stand from the mirrors of the women who gathered at the entrance to the tent of the meeting. Um, and, and, and the term that's used in Hebrew is bimarot hatsovot. That sovot is a uh, an adjective that refers to the women themselves who gathered or who but flocked. The word tzava is the same word. That's right. The word for army is tzava. And um, it is the mirrors of these women who are referred to as the tzovot, uh from which the this this wash basin was constructed. And of course, this begs the question, number one, of why mirrors? And number two, uh, why this unique construction made out of tools that women brought specifically as 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 unlike other parts of the Mishkan. And it's also really interesting, there seem to be some women who had that practice to gather at the entrance to the tent of meeting, who are these women who sort of gather there? Right, and, and interestingly, they can only come to the entrance because the, the, the work of the temple is done by male priests. Uh, but in any case, um, there's a very interesting Midrash, and quite a well-known Midrash, that Rashi quotes, uh, saying that the women folk of Israel had mirrors which they used when they beautified themselves with cosmetics. And when they offered these mirrors as gifts to the Mishkan, Moses' immediate reaction was to reject them, uh, since they were made for yetzar hara, or sexual purposes. They are tempting, they're meant for beautification, vanity, what have you. And God told him, accept them. 
these are dearer to me than all the other gifts. Uh, because it was due to these mirrors that these women brought myriads into the world when they were in Egypt. And here there's this play on word on the word tzvaot or tzovot, um, not the women flocking, but actually a reference to what you said before about tzava, about large numbers of people. And here the relationship is using these mirrors, the children, the, the women of the people of Israel begot, they had, they brought into the world scores of new Israelites. Um, leaving Egypt, so they had a function. And then Rashi even tells us a whole story there, right? That there's a there's a backstory, there's a midrash, which uh, yeah. Which why don't explains. you why don't you tell us that midrash? Okay, so Alex. we have this uh, we have this very interesting image, which takes us right back to the the story of the, the let's call it the labor camps, the work camps, which the the Israelites were in, and it seems like the men were enslaved, and uh, you know when you're in an environment in which you know your only prospect is raising if you if if you will have children that they'll just be in a miserable slavery uh, one assumes that one really doesn't want to bring new children into the world you know if your choice is either having them in backbreaking labor and be whipped and what have you or thrown into the river the prospect of bringing the next generation into the world isn't isn't you know isn't very exciting so it says here that uh, when the husbands were engaged in backbreaking labor, the women would come to see their husbands. You know, they're imagining that the men are in work camps and they'd bring with them just sort of a meal, food and drink. Now, in this Midrash, the women really want to have children more than the men. You know, we have this tradition of that it's actually the Jewish women who raised them are the keys to the future. In the beginning of Shemot, we're at the end of Shemot, but at the beginning of Shemot, you have the midwives who are the women and, you know, Pharaoh's daughter and uh, Moses' sister, all the heroes, the beginning of the story are all women, right? And it says they'd eat together. And then they, what they would do is they would actually try and seduce their husbands, arouse them sexually. And they'd look in the mirrors together with them. So they'd come along. This is the, this is the picnic kit, right? Some food and a mirror. <laughs> and they'd say, I'm, they'd say, look, I'm more beautiful than you. And the other one would say, no, I'm more beautiful than you. And they'd sort of flirt with their husbands, right? They'd arouse the sexual interest of their husbands. And they would get pregnant and they would give give birth there. And this is somehow connected to a pasuk in Shir HaShirim, underneath the apple tree, I aroused you. Anyway, <laughs> the idea is that, you know, these are, these mirrors were actually used for a, a purpose, a, a genuine sexual, a purpose of seduction and arousal. But this was the key to Jewish continuity. This was the key to ensuring that the Jews didn't give in to despair in, when they were suffering from backbreaking labor. Uh, but instead, these women had faith in the future and they really believed in the future. And they, and through these mirrors, which were later donated to the Mishkan, um, they made this wash basin. And, and it seems like Moshe, Moshe was hesitant. What, what's Moshe's hesitation here? Well, I mean, if we take it to the sexual direction and the vanity side, then Moshe probably thinks that the women are uh, trying to bring in, you know, sexuality from a realm that isn't holy, from somewhere that, you know, is vain, that is not pure. But I think, Alex, that this Midrash obviously goes much deeper than just the sexual aspect. I think 
clearly what we're talking about here is uh, the male side. And this is why this Midrash, I think, is so uh, popular and relevant today in a time where we think of women differently than we did in the past, where it's the men who had lost hope in continuity. It's the men who succumb to the decree of Pharaoh and stop procreating. And it's the women who are the ones that provide the hope um, and the women who actually um, encourage the men to take action and not lose hope. So it's much more than just sex sexuality. Maybe you could even say it's about participation and it's about hope. So the, the Midrash actually ends with this tying it together back to the idea of the Mishkan and the temple and says, well, why was the wash basin made of these mirrors? Because the wash basin serves uh, to provide water to couples who are in dispute, uh, namely in the case of the Sota, a woman who is suspected of being unfaithful. The water is sort of a test uh, that can potentially, in the best case scenario, bring peace between man and wife. Right, and there was this uh, story that there was like suspected and a suspected affair that... Uh, the temple enabled a ritual whereby, hopefully, it was just a suspicion, and then they tested the water with this special water, which uh, we're saying comes from the from the kior, from the wash basin, and this could, you know, some, somehow clear up the suspicions and restore the marriage. Right. So I think really the question comes down to, is the Mishkan an ex-territory? Is it something that is completely detached from the lives of the people that it's supposed to serve? I mean, we do bring sacrifices, and those sacrifices are brought outside the sanctuary itself, in the courtyard where the main uh, altar was. But, or whether we can, you know, bring our desires, bring our hopes, bring our inclinations in a risky way, in a, in a way that's uh, not necessarily a safe way, because it could go either way, this water test, uh, the sota test, um, and think of the Mishkan as a more uh, as almost a place for couples therapy, almost or a place where sexuality can be expressed um, in a certain way. It seems like not everyone, though, uh, agrees with this more liberal, uh, emancipatory women's emancipation type uh, thinking. And we do have another commentator, a very important uh, Torah commentator, who thinks something else about these mirrors. So Alex, tell us about him. So, you know what, even before we get to this other commentator, the Ibn Ezra, um, I, I think you're really touching on something which goes to the core of the, the whole question of the temple. You know, um, to, in, to enter into the temple or to enter into the Mishkan, you always need to purify yourself. And uh, the question, you know, sometimes we take these words, you know, uh, pure and unpure. So if you, I ask you, pure and unpure, who, who would not want to be pure? <laughs> yeah. We all want to be pure. But the truth is that, in, in the, the average Jew in ancient times was more likely to be impure than pure. What do I mean by that? Let me explain. You know, if you, from when we reach adulthood, right, a woman who menstruates, right, is going to be ritually impure. If you're a farmer and you deal with livestock and livestock die, you're going to be ritually impure. If you go to what most adults have to do from time to time, to a funeral, you're going to be impure, right? Even a man who, according to the halakha, a man who has sex, becomes impure, tumat keri. In other words, being part of life, being part of adult life at any rate, means you're impure. To go to the temple actually means taking a step out of life. It means leaving your life behind. <laughs> to go, to make yourself pure, you have to like get ready for seven days and sprinkle these ashes of the, the, the red heifer. You, you probably had to plan it. <laughs> and you had to be careful where you stepped. And you had to be careful what you touched. And and by the way, in those times, you didn't only go to the mikvah, you had to 
put your clothes in the mikvah. I guess between when you went to the mikvah to when you went to the temple, you had to use special drinking vessels or, you know, you couldn't just use a regular water bottle or you had to dunk that in the mikvah as well. In other words, the default is actually to be impure. Yeah. To become pure for the temple is actually to take, to put your life on hold and take a step out of life. In that sense, by the way, the temple sometimes was maybe a, a sort of out-of-life experience. It was going to an ivory tower and it was to be somewhere which was sort of out of life. And in this regard, you have this different explanation of the Ibn Ezra, where the Ibn Ezra says that, in fact, these mirrors, he says here that Mishpat put women like to look good. I mean, we're so used to looking in the mirror, men also, right? We look in the mirror to make sure our hair is, uh, you know, that we haven't buttoned up our shirt the wrong way. And he says, and there were certain women, there were women who served God. They decided to abandon any sort of beauty, to abandon their marital lives. But not as an expression of becoming a sort of a, a nun of sorts, right? As an expression of like abandoning their sexuality and any concern for themselves, they um they decided to um you know totally abandon sexuality. And in fact, it's interesting that we we hear about groups of these in the book of Shmuel, where the corrupt sons of Eli seems to It seems like there were groups of women who sort of like totally dedicated their life to spirituality and left their lives behind. And when you take, you know, the way you presented the Rashi, whereas you got Ibn Ezra says, no, 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 actually... The reason why this laver or this wash basin is holy because the mirrors are people abandoning sex, abandoning life, abandoning their family involvement. <laughs> they have, their kids have grown up and now they're like, okay, I'm just going to be fully spiritual, right? I don't even care how I look. And this raises a fascinating question about like, where do we see this ideal, right? When we go to meet the spiritual, when we meet, go to meet Hashem, do we leave it? our lives behind and sort of like want to be in this spiritual place where we pretend as if our regular life doesn't exist. Right. Is the temple a monastery, essentially? Yes. Or is it a place where people convene more like perhaps our modern synagogues where men and women actually do meet inside the same space? And I guess that's the crux of the difference between Rashi and Ibn Ezra, symbolized by these mirrors. Are they discarded uh, tools of vanity that should be discarded and given away and shaped into something else that's pure and holy like the basin? Or should they be enshrined in a way as a symbol of this beautiful sexuality that brought out these armies, these tzva'ot, and that helped the Jews procreate in a time of uh, despair? Um, and I think it's really interesting, this quote you brought from the book of Shmuel uh, and the sons of Eli, uh, who we know we know that there was sexual abuse happening there. And that's exactly what the, the brand new prophet Shmuel accuses Eli of, of turning a blind eye to the misdeeds of his sons. And that's why eventually they, they're punished and there's no continuation for that line because they take, take advantage and they abuse the Nashim Atzovot, these desperate women. Shmuel's mother himself, Herbert herself, was one of these desperate women who came to the temple seeking guidance. Um, and as we saw, women aren't allowed in the sanctuary. They, they're they can only reach the entrance. But maybe in some symbolic way through these mirrors, they're allowed in through their, not in, not in body, but at least in spirit. Maybe that's one way of thinking about it. Well, it's interesting because when you, when you raise this question of sexual abuse in, in, the, in, you know, in the story of Shmuel at the temple, what that says to me is that sexuality is not something which goes away. 
You know, so there are some communities in Israel who are looking for maximal segregation, as if if we segregate, there won't be any sexuality. But the truth is, sexuality never goes away. Um, and now the question is, you know, how is it channeled? And uh, actually, what th this was exactly the discussion between God and Moses in the Rashi that you brought. Moses said, oh, they use this for beautification. This is inappropriate. God says, oh, no, that, that actually is an appropriate sexuality. Yeah. There is an appropriate way of channeling sexuality that it can actually enhance religion and isn't seen as sort of the opposite of religion. And that sometimes, you know, maybe the temple is actually meant to be the place where we bring a lot of things from the world. I think about, you know, even the Bikurim, right? The, the first fruits. Mm -hmm. We're meant to bring our agriculture to the temple. We bring more of ourselves. We, we don't just lead our life. We bring our agriculture to the temple. Maybe we bring, maybe what? there is an appropriate sexuality yeah. which is meant to be brought to the temple. Yeah, and I mean, the temple compound couldn't have been a women-free zone because women are obligated to bring a specific sacrifice after giving birth. There's a kolban yoledit. Women had to bring sacrifices after the waiting period after giving birth. So it had to be in this temple. There also wasn't a mechitza there because we know they made a mechitza only once a year. That's right. And that was on Sukkot for the big big party. Right. right? But the rest of the year, men and women intermingled. It's true. And there was an area in the temple called Ezrat Nashim. That's still the, the term we use today for our synagogues, the women's section. That's an azara. That's a, that's a word uh, referring to the domain uh, in the temple compound where women came. But women had to be there. Not only did if they sinned, they had to brought that they'd have to bring a sacrifice just like men, but there were specific sacrifices for women giving birth. So women had to be there. And I guess this, the question is, how do we deal with this mixing in a, in a way that's proper, in a way that's holy? Um, and they, maybe that's one of the questions that this uh, these texts raise. Okay, uh, I think that's a wonderful a wonderful place maybe for us to to close this with. Uh, you know, I like leaving things with questions. Because, I, but you know, I, again, I will, I will definitely say that th th I think this is a question even in all sorts of arenas. I was thinking as you were speaking about Shabbat, right? Shabbat is a day which is a holy day, but it's a day where we celebrate through food and through uh, company and friends. And funnily enough, when we talk about sexuality, there also is a tradition that it's a time for husband and wife to be intimate. Because there is again an idea that uh, sexuality is, is is a glue within families, and it, it, it is something which enables us to to raise to raise sexuality to a higher level. So you know, I don't think we always see ourselves as, as a monastic religion by any means. Maybe the question is in the house of God. <laughs> in the house of God, what's the room for all of these things? Yeah, maybe one last thought that I that I'd like to share is. Is the temple a top-down or a bottom-up type of initiative or project? Is it something that God needs uh, to communicate with us? Or rather, is it something, and then we need to build him a house, right, with furniture? Or is it something that the people of Israel need in order to communicate with him? And I think when King Solomon com completes the construction of the first temple, he very much goes with that second option of saying, You, you do not need a house. Right? This house is not meant to con contain or constrain God. It's a place where all the mouths of the Israelites will turn to, to pray to you. It's a focal point for communication with God. Today, we have different fo foci, different focal points, not the same one as, as before. But in biblical Judaism, you needed one focal point. And it's one center that symbolizes, I guess, the unification of all the people. And we are united in our prayers, men and women. And hopefully, you know, our 
sanctuaries can continue to be those places that unify and bring peace between men and women. So that's my final thought. Amen. Thank you so much, Alex, for this discussion. Great to you and Shabbat Shalom to all our listeners. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of Pardes North America. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on Spotify for the latest episodes of the Pardes Parsha podcast.